Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy, Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Today we have a very important announcement about the future of this podcast. Also, in today's lightning, lightning round, Ronaldo will give the Academy's outlook for various asset classes. But first, Ronaldo, let's talk about the major current events in the news right now. Uh, we've got a lot to cover. We're going to go from renowned climate scientist James, Han- James Hansen's recent up, uh, announcement that he's in favor of safe nuclear power, or so-called safe nuclear power. Uh, the Pope has come out against fracking. And, Ronaldo, you see a connection between the fall of the Roman Empire and recent assaults on food stamps by members of Congress. After we talk about these subjects, Ronaldo will also discuss China's intended political and economic reforms, the economic struggles of the European Union, the ongoing mismanagement of Venezuela, and a solution for the slow response to super, super typhoon uh, Haiyan that recently leveled parts of the Philippines. But, Ronaldo, let's start with the announcement from James Hansen. Yeah, let's do that. It's really kind of – thanks, Matt. appreciate it. That's a full agenda. I hope we get through it. Um, it's it's kind of tragic to see James Hansen and a number of other really talented uh, global scientists, climate change scientists, so fearful of climate change that they would be willing to put to, to jeopardize um, basically not only the people who live near a Fukushima in the future, but to jeopardize all of human society for ten thousand years because of an inability to get rid of the toxic waste. Yeah. And last but not least. Uh, kill untold numbers of people in the meantime from the normal exhaust of strontium-90 from nuclear power plants. So, and, he, and I know he called for cleaner nuclear. He said cleaner. But, but the bottom line is nuclear cannot be done cleaner. There is no even remotely on the drawing board's proposal by any serious engineering group for how to do that. So I feel it's a tragedy on two levels, Matt. Number one, it's a tragedy that the best climate scientist in the world, James Hansen, would be so desperate that he would take the moral dive, knowing of the environmental consequences, just the toxic waste alone. He probably doesn't know about strontium-90. He doesn't know that much about nuclear. And so what's happened is the nuclear industry has lobbied a lot of environmentalists to get them out of their fear of climate change, which is real, to support things that are absolutely crazy and in both the short and the long term. And, and by the way, he, 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 the comment that he made, that he based it upon, which is really nuts, is he said it was because you couldn't ramp up renewables fast enough. And that's just not true. Because yeah, that's the question I had, Ronaldo. Is what, what's the calculation that Hansen's making here? Why is he in favor of something that he knows is also toxic for the environment? Well, because he, he doesn't understand... He doesn't know how to get around the limitations of grid electricity. In other words, if you take it as a given that we're going to have a grid, then you come up with some of the conclusions that are drastic like what he's giving you. However, if you realize, like the Germans have and like we have at the Academy, that you can convert unlimited resources, meaning unlimited solar, unlimited, the one I prefer is wind, unlimited geothermal, all clean energy sources, zero carbon pollution, and you can convert them at the source to hydrogen and then deploy that hydrogen around the country, and therefore you can scale up as fast as you like, you, you, def- you absolutely poleaxe the very assumption upon which Hansen's decision is based. So the tragedy is he doesn't know enough about wind to hydrogen, he doesn't know enough about the hydrogen economy. And as you know, the Academy has recently made it a goal Starting in California in 2014, but then as fast as we can, we're going to be putting out a series of ebooks. People need to understand that we're going to go to a hydrogen economy. That's what's going to replace coal. And if we use, and, and, and by the way, that's what's going to replace oil, all fossil fuels. And as we do that, we can do it as fast as we like, and we don't need to can do a, devil, a bargain with the devil for nuclear. So for those people who are even remotely on the fence about nuclear, please write us an email and ask me to go into greater detail of why nuclear is insane on every level. And I'm, you know, I wish I had the time to write Jim a letter about how wrong he is about nuclear. 
Um, but I don't have that time right now. Maybe Matt will figure out a way to get to it in the next week or so. I don't know, but we're so jammed up with other projects. But we need to get people like Hansen on board with the fact he doesn't have to take a dive like this ethically. In order, in fact, I'll be, te- I'll be teaching a class at um, University of California, San, um, Santa Barbara, UCSB, this week on Wednesday. And this will be one of the subjects I'll be covering there. So it's really tragic that Jim Hansen would take this dive. And it's particularly tragic that he doesn't realize that he has to. So I'm going to, I mean, in some way we've got to get that in front of him. But that's the comment I want to make for today. And um, the, his fear of climate change is real. We're, we're, as people know, listen to this program, we're in a negative environmental feedback loop. Uh, we're looking at catastrophic consequences. Uh, the typhoon, which we're going to talk about in a minute, that hit the Philippines, is a classic example of why that's going to keep happening over and over again. And they have bigger than Superstorm Sandy, more violent winds than ever recorded in human history. So I understand his fear, and I can see why the Philippines triggered this comment, but at the end of the day, he's falling for a false god. He's worshiping a false god, and I feel like we, we, we just need to help him understand the essence of what nuclear is about um, on all three levels, that it's economically crazy, storage of waste for 10,000 years that we can't possibly contain, crazy, likelihood of uh, another catastrophic event like Fukushima, very high, uh, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, and uh, Chernobyl, and every time one of those happens, people say it's a once-in-a-thousand-year phenomenon, except we've now had three, more are coming. And last but not least, the constant rainy radioactive isotope, strontium-90, on civilian populations, causing extremely elevated levels of cancer, which are clearly has been proven. So all of those factors are things Hansen doesn't know because he's a climate scientist. What we need to do is educate him on nuclear, which I'd love to try yeah. and do. Well, while we're on the topic of morality of energy sources, something really interesting happened recently where the Pope came out against fracking. Can you talk a little bit about that? I would love to. First of all, i got to say, I don't think I've praised many religious leaders on this show because I tend to think that, um, although I was, I'm a very spiritual person, I believe in the spiritual dimension of human society, I really um, do not consider myself religious. But this new pope is really getting me excited. And it, it seems to make sense that he's saying what he's saying, because if you think about it, he's trying to help the poor. He's really taking his, mon- his, his, his moniker of St. Francis personally. So he's done a lot of things to try and help the poor. He, he, he threw the Bishop of Bling out of his $45 million mansion in Germany and told him don't come back to the diocese because that's an extravagance when the poor are suffering. Yeah. He's taken other positions which are clearly at the, trying to help the poor of the poor. Well, climate, the response on climate on fracking came from a group of people in Argentina, actually, which is his home diocese, in which they pointed out how the, how, how the poor are disproportionately victims of the climate change. So the, the issue that's often referred to in, in sociological cir- circles is climate justice. How can we have the poorest countries, the poorest people, suffering the most from the extravagant use of fossil fuels in the, in the wealthier countries? That's what he's talking about. And what he's saying and said in this is it's a burden to the poor to frack because it releases all this um, um, uh, methane into the air which further warms the atmosphere. And when you burn the, the, the gas itself, yes, it's half as clean as oil, but it's still dirty, and renewable energy isn't. So what he's calling for is a more socially just approach to how we select energy sources, how we deploy energy sources, and how we use energy resources. And for that, I really want to applaud him, because it is an issue for the poor. And I can see why a man of faith who wants to help the poor, as this pope clearly does, uh, you know, and I, he gave up he gave up his um, papal apartments. I mean, he's just been an amazing example of a man of the cloth who doesn't want to live like a prince, who actually wants to divert resources to the poor. And this latest position of his, I think, is consistent with that. Is that does that cover it for you, Matt? Or you want? Yeah, to... that's excellent. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, while we're while we're talking about the Pope, and let's stay in Italy here for a minute and talk about the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, really interesting connection you made between the fall of the Roman Empire and what our Congress is doing right now by cutting the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as SNAP or food stamps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, it's kind of fun for people to think back. You know, most people don't know why the Roman Empire collapsed. They know that something happened where 
the Romans got more and more into debauchery and bread and circuses and how the emperor would try to keep them entertained so they could do whatever he wanted behind the curtain. And remember, Rome was a very small city-state that basically ran the whole known world at that time. And what people have been thinking about for many, many years is like, you know, what happened? How come they went from this extraordinary advanced society of engineers, military tacticians, um, they, did, they did phenomenal logistics. People forget that the first true road system in the world was the, was, was the Roman Appias, the, the, the roadways. And they were designed and paved to reach every part of the empire, and they were exactly wide enough for a Roman cohort, a military unit, to march down. And when they linked their shields, it was like a tank coming down the street, so to speak. And by linking that way, they created a rapid communication system by chariot so they could, they could communicate mail back and forth at, at, at multiple speeds faster than any of their competitor nations. So they were, became the most powerful nation in the world from a fairly small city-state. Well, the reason people don't know, and what we now know historically, why Rome collapsed is because one of the things Rome conquered when it went way far north to the British Isles, to where Glastonbury Cathedral is, by the way, which is an interesting point all by itself because Glastonbury, which is kind of like the seat of the Druids, was. It was considered to be the place where the, the, the Holy Chalice, the, the Grail, was lost. It's theoretically where Joseph of Arimathea brought the body of Christ after the crucifixion. We don't know if any of that legend stuff is true. Really don't. We do know the Druids were based there. But we know one thing for sure is a fact about that culture. They had enormous lead mines. So when the Romans went up there, northern uh, uh, England, to Glastonbury, what they were after was lead. So they would take the lead in ships and they'd bring it back to Rome. Why? Because when they built these enormous aqueducts that took water from tens of miles away, from mountains and whatnot, other resources and rivers, and they brought that water into the city, because remember, Rome not only had an abundant amount of water to drink, it had water for fountains all over the place, where all that water was considered a mainstay of the Republic, ultimately the, the military dictatorship of Rome. Well, the, the way they would take and build those aqueducts is they would take two stone, basically, um, pieces, and they would pump them to, push them together as hard as they could, and then to fill in the remaining crack, they would put in lead. Hmm. So lead was the sealer used between each section of the aqueduct for all the tens of miles, all the way down until it got to Rome. Well, lead is water-soluble, as most people know. Therefore, what they were doing is they were bringing water into Rome that was polluted with lead. And that lead pollution reduced the ability of the Romans to think, because one of the, one of the things that happens when you're exposed to lead is that it decreases your mental capacity. It's kind of an interesting story. So literally, the Roman citizenry went crazy, and it was because they stole the lead from the Druids. So a little payback to the, the Druids, which was a mystical, uh, not militarily sophisticated, but very mystical, uh, high culture, theoretically the culture of Merlin the Magician, the magician etc. Um, this culture got its payback on Rome because the lead they stole actually took and drove the entire nation of Rome, the city-state of Rome, crazy. Now, how is the so, correlation yeah, so that? What, I was going to ask, what, what, what's the parallel then with, with what we're seeing today with Congress cutting nutritional assistance? Okay, so first of all, you've got to know, and by the way, it's already been cut, and then we're talking about further cuts coming up. So it's already been cut, and, and you have 47 million people in the United States today who are on food stamps. That's an enormous number of people. And with 47 million people on food stamps, we still have 14% of the toddlers in America, because either, these are, these are uh, food security jeopardized families, 14% have anemia, meaning they don't have enough red blood cells in their body because their food source doesn't give them a rich enough diet. One of the certain attributes of anemia in a child or toddler is that they will grow up with less brain capacity. So it doesn't make you crazy to have anemia. It just doesn't make you as smart as you would have been if you didn't have anemia. Hmm. So at a time when we're asking more of our citizenry to be able to adopt 
or adapt to new job descriptions, to adapt to competition in the global world, uh, to deal with, get, get more benefit out of a collapsing education system. Uh, and when you see the poor getting poorer and the rich getting richer, and the levels of anemia in America going up, such that the voters of tomorrow are going to grow up mentally impaired. Now, are they going to be certifiably crazy? No, not like the Romans. But they're going to be less sophisticated mentally rather than more sophisticated. And every time that percentage of anemia goes up, you have that many more people. I would say 14% of toddlers right now is an alarming number, which clearly means the country is dumbing down biochemically, so organically doubling down its population so that the poorest of the poor will not be able to compete and not only that, won't be able to take advantage of the educational system. And that's totally apart from what we know is the all the studies that have done that show that when kids get hungry, and you can particularly track this in the food stamp program because by the end of the month, typically the food stamps have run out, and so kids go hungrier at the end of the month, the beginning of the month. Those kids don't perform as well in schools. Why? Yeah. Well, think about it. If you're hungry and your stomach's growling, how much attention are you paying to your arithmetic? So just on the subject of what we need to do to be smart to protect our citizenry because they're going to be voting in the politicians of tomorrow, we cannot take any further cuts to food stamps. In fact, we should be expanding them. The vast majority of food stamps, two-thirds of them, go to children, families with children, elders, the disabled, and military. Two-thirds. Only one-third goes to so-called able-bodied people, and that's typically during job transitions. So we're so, not talking about a program that's being abused. We're talking about a safety net program that is vital even for the, 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 the survivability of our democracy. And, of course, the moral issue, which I think is even larger, which is how can we allow people to starve in a land of plenty? Wrong yeah. on the moral level alone. What's the rationale here? Why is Congress doing this? I don't understand. Okay, well, first of all, it's doing it because it believes so-called entitlements are wrong. Now, they're afraid to say that about the entitlement called Social Security because the seniors will throw them out of office. Seniors vote disproportionately high. They're not going to complain about Medicare, the second biggest entitlement, because everybody on Medicare, which is all seniors, would also throw them out of office. So they're going around picking on the things that will cause the most damage to the least represented in our society. Mm. You know, it's, it's almost like they should go read the New Testament. A lot of these people claim to be Christians. And I believe there's a quote in there to the effect that from attributed to Jesus, which says, what you do for these, the least of my brethren, that you do for me. I think we forgot that in this country. I think we've lost our moorings. We, we, we were no longer anchored to what's ethically and morally required. We've lost the ability to care about our neighbor. We don't seem to lose it in our own communities. We seem to do a better job when we can see the face of hunger right in front of us. But even there, as you know, Matt, I'm very involved with the homeless projects here in Santa Barbara. And, and even in the homeless issues, we're seeing tremendous resistance to taking care of those of us who are less fortunate at a time when... Those of us who are in the top 10% are astronomically increasing our wealth. The middle class is being destroyed, and we now have more and more people below the poverty line. And, and, I, and I just want to touch on this one last time because I did it last month again. You know, I'm really upset, and that's the right word. I'm upset that we have accepted in the United States of America that it's okay for somebody to work a 40-hour week and still be below the poverty line. That's, what, that's a lot where those food stamps are going, for the yeah. one-third that aren't elderly. Actually, a lot of it's going there for children, uh, families with children. But elderly, military veterans, and um, people with disabilities. I'm really upset that if you could get a job working 40 hours a week at McDonald's, you are below the poverty line. That's wrong. That's just flat wrong. It's morally unacceptable. And why did we accept that? If someone's working 40 hours a week, we shouldn't call them the working poor. We should call them the working. And one would hope that we'd start to rebuild the middle class rather than continue to decimate it, as we have been doing. And you ask, why is it happening? Because the power in Washington goes to the people who can lobby the most, and Citizens United is a huge part of that problem. There's, it, it's, it's, it's just endemic in our system. And therefore, the, 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 the analogy between the fall of the Roman Empire because of lead poisoning 
and the fall of America because its unwillingness to educate its children and is willing to put up with a 14% anemia rate in its toddlers and is no longer willing to do for its least fortunate people what it needs to do as a society. For all of those reasons, the fall of the Roman Empire is a precursor to the fall that's currently occurring in the U.S. For people who want to run around and say we're number one, the bottom line is, folks, we're not. The United States is number, what, 28th in education globally? I mean, I could go down the list. We're the last, we're the lowest of all industrial nations in terms of the quality of the health care system, and we're twice as high as the second highest coster. So the second highest system that spends money, we spend twice as much as they do, but we're the lowest in terms of results achieved of any industrial nation. So in terms of health care. So we are already, and, and, and there's a couple of topics we're going to come in today, including China and a few others, we're already on the decline, and the question I want to ask people listening to this, in the United States, and I've got another question for people out of the United States, if you're in the United States, do you really want to continue to see your nation collapse like this, to become a second, ultimately a third-rate nation? Or do you want to regain days of glory? The only way that happens in this country is if you have a strong middle class. And the only way that's going to happen is have a whole lot of people go out and vote their own best interest, not a bunch of garbage that gets handled to them as a, some kind of Tea Party rave that then goes and destroys the very support systems for the middle class we're talking about. So I, I'm really, really, really kind of upset about this. It's, it's just wrong yeah. that we've accepted that America could be that way. For people overseas, don't you want to see America become that shining, what Jack Kennedy used to call the shining citadel on the hill? Don't you want to see the United States become a moral force for good again? Don't you want to see us become a country that, is, that, is, that, that doesn't ask what it costs but does for its neighbor just because it's the right thing to do? If that's what you want outside the country, let your friends and relatives in the country know that. Write newspaper editors, blog, do whatever you can to encourage America to pull itself up by its bootstraps and get going again. And if you live in the country, this is the hour of crisis you're being called to. Do you want to fiddle while Rome's burning, in this case, while the U.S. is falling? Or do you want to do something about it? And if you do, tell your friends about this program and figure out what's the one thing you can do today to reverse that collapse. Because if you don't do one small thing, or one big thing, but one thing a day to reverse the collapse, collapse is what happens when we fail to do anything else to avert it. I want to zoom out a little bit uh, and talk about what's going on over the overseas in China. Uh, they've recently announced a 10-year economic and political plan that is going to put them on a course that's very different than the one for the past 50 years. It, do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, I do, and that was just, I was just alluding to it. See, China uh, on October 17th announced that they thought it was time to stop using the U.S. dollar as, the, as was called the global reserve currency. Now, they've been talking quietly for quite some time about this. But now they're calling basically to push the U.S. aside as the dominant economic power in the world. Uh, Iran and China already sell, uh, buy and sell oil without using U.S. dollars. And the rest of the world is starting to look at it. China, for example, in the last two weeks, has just floated two giant renminbi bonds. So that's the, the currency of China is renminbis. And Westerners bought them for a 3.3% return. So there's, they're now issuing bonds denominated in Chinese currency. No one used to be able to do that. You had to be able to provide for large bond offerings that they'd be in U.S. currency because that was the reserve currency. Well, we, we're getting pushed off that throne, and the Chinese are pushing us there. They're pushing us off. And they're saying the American currency isn't stable, and it isn't strong. The Chinese currency is, in their way of thinking. So it's time to stop being dominated in the monetary system by the U.S. dollar. In addition... In that, just last week, as the second shoe dropping, the Politburo, the Chinese Communist Party, made its major announcement of its program for the next 10 years. Now, that's significant because 10 years is roughly the time that the new um, prime minister and his team have in office. Now, under the Chinese system, you get 10 years. And you announce at the beginning of that 10 years what you're, how you're setting the stage. Now... Chinese politics are extremely opaque. You know, I'm reminded of that famous Winston Churchill quote, China uh, is an enigma 
surrounded by a riddle uh, and emerged in, mis- emerged in mystery. Meaning, it's always hard to divine or to figure out what China is doing and why it's doing it, even when it says something, because it's, 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 it's all the boxes within boxes, thoughts within thoughts, and often it's very, very obtuse. That said, the 10-year program that the Politburo publishes is a statement of what they're going to try to accomplish, which they actually get held to by the rest of the Communist Party. Now, I wouldn't have expected them to say, we're going to become more democratic in those 10 years, because they're not. They've made it very clear that a return to Maoism, a very strong force, is what they intend to do for the next 10 years. And they've even formed a new... domestic security agency, much like our NSA, to coordinate all security apparatus so that they could have an even bigger stranglehold over the country. That said, what they did do, which is very significant, and by the way, most of the media is all caught up, Matt, in the fact that they changed their one-child policy and now it's going to be a two-child policy. Well, average mother that gives birth in China actually does 1.5 babies today, so that's not as big a thing as it sounds like. But what it is is it's the beginning of them pulling back from the most intimate control over every individual citizen's life. So they are loosening up at some very basic levels. The other thing that they did, and, and I think the media is missing the point, thinking, focusing on the two-child versus one-child, what they should be focusing on is that China realizes because it's created this huge middle class, it's got to do something to back off a little bit from the control mechanism over daily life as long as it isn't political. So they'll stomp vigorously on anything that's political, and they have no intention of letting the Communist Party be pushed off of center stage. But they want to reduce some of the personal controls so that their middle class won't feel oppressed. The other thing they did in this announcement, which is huge, is they said they're going to do a serious land reform, which they've been experimenting with, so it looks like they're going to adopt it, so that the farmers in the countryside, when their land gets seized by the local Communist Party leader in order to do a real estate deal with his brother-in-law, up until now, the farmers were thrown on the street, even if they'd been farming that land for 500 years. So the farmer ends up in the city with no, no money in his pockets or family to support, and all of a sudden, the cities get flooded with all these millions and millions of people who the Chinese government has to find something to do with or they'll create revolution. Well, they realized that if the farmers have some economic stake in their land, they'll be less likely to leave it that quickly. And if it is seized by the local Communist Party, they'll have some jingle in their jeans when they get to the city. So they've decided to to really seriously look at a second tier of, quote, ownership, which they're calling leasehold rights. But that's the first time that's ever happened in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. That's really, really an important change. Some of the other changes they mentioned, I'm not going to go into all of them, all tend to go to, for example, they're going to allow private banks to exist. That's amazing. Uh, because it means they're beginning to decentralize the monetary system. My guess is the private banks will outperform the state banks, and once they start to do that, they'll let, they'll take, it'll take some of the pressure off the government having to support the state banks. Now, many people, many very sophisticated commentators, Nicholas Kristof, for example, in the New York Times, are disappointed that the liberalization of the economy rules didn't go further, that they didn't uh, really step up and to say, you know, we're going to really withdraw some of our support from state-owned corporations. I think that discouragement is premature. I believe the way I read the tea leaves in China, China is using this opportunity to expand its ability to democratize the business side of China, the the economy, to basically loosen up on the economy, creating even a bigger middle class. And I believe that bigger middle class over time will require political change. I think what China is going to find out is even if it tries to do this, it's going to try to ride the back of the tiger. But as the old saying goes, he who rides the back of the tiger soon ends up inside. So I think what's going to happen is they're going to continue to liberalize economically because they have to, and they won't go any faster than they have to, but they'll go as fast as they do have to because they've got to create a middle class, they've got to create a services economy, they have to create domestic consumption. And when they do all those things, it will, in fact, create bigger middle class, and that bigger middle class will be increasingly difficult to control. It will start with releasing them from personal uh, control like the one-child policy, and eventually, my guess, it'll end up in a political change 10, 20 years out. If it doesn't, China will collapse from the amount of corruption they'll have to create to keep their system in place. Now, let me just address what does that mean for Europe or the rest of the economy? Is that where you want to go? 
Well, actually, I was going to ask a quick question about uh, sure. to going back to the uh, de-Americanization push and the fact that they're selling sovereign debt and want to move away from a U.S. Domin- uh, a US dominated currency for the globe. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the connection with uh, American politics and the possible implications for our economy? Oh, my God. The implications for our economy are, are staggering. First of all, the only reason that the Fed and are we, are we going to talk about Janet Yellen today or not? I don't have it on. I didn't announce it, but we can put it in here if you'd like. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, I'm a big Janet Yellen fan, as people know who listen to the show. I, I endorsed her when she was running against Larry Summers, and I said why she, Summers should not be given that position and why I was glad that Yellen was and most likely that she would get it, and I'm glad she did. I, um, Janet Yellen is definitely um, even more liberal, if you will, in terms of creating credit than Ben Bernanke. Uh, I know her career quite well. Very smart woman. I'm delighted she's a new Fed chairwoman. Um, or going to be. And by the way, did you see that she got through on when they they, they threw her softballs? And the, the Republican attack machine went silent there. I thought it was very interesting. They let her through pretty. It easy. was. Yeah. It yeah kind of, I'm not it, sure what I, that, the calculation was there. Yeah, I, I can tell you what I think it's about. But, but I'll tell you right now. You know what that was about? Yeah. The Republican Party is hearing loud and hard right now from the business community because originally the Republican Party was the party of business. And the business community has really, really gotten upset with the Republican Party. As right. we can see from the elections that just happened, uh, look at how they didn't even support financially. What's his name in Virginia? Cuccinelli. Yeah, Cuccinelli was outspent four to one by the Democrat right. there, Terry McAuliffe. And, you know, he couldn't raise any money from the business community, which it's unheard of for a Republican not to raise money from the business community. The reason is because he's Tea Party. And right. they finally realized that the Tea Party almost destroyed the U.S. economy with this whole debt ceiling thing, and they've been doing it too, too often. So the Republicans are trying to rebuild the Republican Party more like the party of Goldwater, Reagan, and Rockefeller. Now, that's a broad spectrum, but that's what the party used to contain. At the same time, I might add, Goldwater was alive, Reagan was alive, and Rockefeller was alive all at the same time in the Republican Party. And yeah. that's, and, you know, so, or the, if you will, the Republican Party of Eisenhower. So they're trying to recover that. By the way, none of those people, Eisenhower, Reagan, um, certainly not Goldwater yeah. and Rockefeller. None of those people could win a primary today, including Goldwater, right. in the Republican Party in anywhere in the Tea Party states. So it tells you how far they've come. So it's really Eisenhower couldn't. So here's where we are today. These folks, the business community, which tends to put finance Republicans, don't want a disruption at the Fed because the Fed has to keep printing money, collapses. And they know that. Because what we're doing is we've got the, the printing press running on high. We're, we're still buying $85 billion or $80 billion a month worth of paper that comes out of thin air. Now, I think that's a good thing. Because until the economy recovers, somebody's got to take up the slack. And the Congress is not willing to deal with it in a rational way on a fiscal policy basis. So they're forcing monetary policy to do 100% of the work, which we've talked about many times in the show. Well... The only way that can keep happening is if the Fed doesn't get disrupted. So if, they, if the Republicans had have attacked Yellen in the Senate and caused any disruption, it would have shaken the markets terribly because the markets have all concluded correctly, and you notice the markets are going up, have been for months. They concluded that Yellen will continue to print just as fast as Bernanke did. No, they're not going to turn off the presses. Right. And right now, that's what scares them. The, the, the Wall Street doesn't want to turn the presses off. So if that had been a contentious hearing, the real money on Wall Street and the rest of the Republican business community would have gone ballistic, and that's what they put the word out. And as you know, the Senate only has three nut jobs, three guys in it that are really crazy, and a couple that are you know, a, little loose in the, a little loose upstairs. So the three crazies, of course, are, are uh, uh, Rand Paul, Cruz, and um, what's his name? Um, Who's his Cruz's buddy? Yeah, I'm forgetting right Newly now. Newly elected, so. first time, first termer out of, uh, I want to say Idaho. It'll come to me. Anyway, Rich, anyway, uh, forget the last name. Those three guys are, you know, complete yahoos. And then they got a half a dozen that are on the edge, like Kelly Ayotte, who's not that strong, but I think has seen the wisdom of going back towards the center a little bit. And as a result, they put the word out, don't screw around with the Fed thing. And so they did. Now, you'd ask the question. Implications. The implications of the U.S. currency being dethroned 
is what's called the reserve currency. And let me explain, and this is almost like a financial literacy issue. What the reserve currency means is that in all international transactions, the ultimate standard against which you measure obligations is the U.S. dollar, unless it's no longer the reserve currency. So China and Iran have already now actively moved to take it away from being a reserve currency. Other nations want to as well. The problem is no one's willing to bet yet on the Chinese renminbi, and the so-called basket of currencies is not as efficient, and the euro certainly isn't stable enough. So the U.S. by default is getting to stay in the position of the reserve currency for the world, which means it's the one you fall back to when you negotiate the value of stuff. And it's the one that everyone has to own. Or or at least has to support. Right. So because of that, we can print as much money as we want because the only people who can call our debt are countries that we owe so much money to that they go bankrupt if we didn't pay it. So China, we owe so much money to China, they can't bankrupt us because if they do, they go bankrupt. Follow? That's what being a reserve currency means. They have all this American money they can't spend anywhere. That's why China's been buying on a buying bridge for 10 years. They're trying to get rid of their U.S. dollars. They're buying up Africa. They're buying up Latin America. And they're not even putting any, often they don't even put any contingencies on it. They're just doing it to get rid of the dollars because they're sitting on so many dollars. And the dollars are going to be increasingly worthless. The key, though, that you need to understand and the audience needs to understand, if we weren't the reserve currency, we'd already be in a depression because you wouldn't be allowed to print that money without creating hyperinflation. So what we're doing is we're printing money like the Weimar Republic printed after World War I. The difference is everybody's got to take the money we print. So we don't end up with hyperinflation. In fact, we have a little bit of deflation going on right now. So the key issue really is if we stop being the reserve currency, as the Chinese called for on October 17th, and as they've now been moving towards with independent sales of renminbi-denominated Chinese currency-denominated bonds, as they move towards that, and as Iran continues to sell oil, outside the U.S. system, we run the real risk that two or more countries will get together, China being one of them for sure, and they will displace the U.S. currency as the reserve currency. If that happens, we can't keep printing money, and the amount of money we already printed will come home to haunt us instantly. So we have to figure out a way to stop printing money while we're still the reserve currency and shore up our economy. The problem there is the Republican House wants to hurt the economy, so Obama... Uh, will be embarrassed, and so they have a hope that they'll get a Republican into the White House. I don't think that's going to happen, but as a result, they're continuing to drag on the economy. They're holding it down. They'll do anything they can to hurt Obama. They'll even try and raise sanctions on Iran when the sanctions are working so well, they come to the table to negotiate it into sanctions. Right. I mean, it's insane the lengths that this, this, this House is going to go to, has gone to, to try and beat Obama and the Democrats with basically by destroying the economy and the country. But that's where we are. And if so we there's a lot of factors. currency status, they're going to win. And, and yeah, actually win lot. in a way they don't want to win. There's a lot of factors at play in that calculation, but I'm wondering what you think the outlook is for China's ability to actually de-Americanize the world economy. Well, I think that it's not good today. I don't think they can do it today for a whole bunch of reasons that are practical and pragmatic. However, the tables are turning. The size of the Chinese economy is continuing to grow at such a significant rate. And by the way, I believe the modest steps they took in this 10-year plan will keep China growing at at least 6-7% per annum. And they'll keep converting their economy over so they're doing more domestic consumption relative to their total production, which means they're a little bit less dependent on the rest of the world. However, in the process, they'll end up owning more of the rest of the world, and therefore they're going to be more interrelated. So it's a very interesting conundrum they have. But they believe that if they continue owning more and more of the world and the Chinese currency continues to get stronger, which it will, and the U.S. dollar continues to get weaker, which it will eventually, then China comes out ahead. So when will that be? Well, here's when it will be. If the U.S. goes into another serious, deep recession, China will pick up all kinds of people who want to follow them and start adopting the renminbi as the currency of last resort. And it doesn't take a lot of countries to break away before you have a split reserve currency. I could see the day, within 10 years or less, where China is the reserve currency for huge parts of Southeast Asia. 
and the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency for the rest of the world. In fact, I could even see where China could be the reserve currency in Southeast Asia and Africa, and the U.S. dollar would be the rest of the world. That is also dangerous for the U.S. because it means that the freedom the U.S. has to print money would be just that much more circumscribed. So while we're talking about macroeconomics, let's touch briefly on Europe. Uh, it, it sounds like the, there's a good story out of Ireland that they're emerging from the bailout. Yeah, it's really great. Um, first of all, that's not surprising, you should know. Um, the reason they're emerging is because um, they, their, their recession was caused by a, a, a dramatic inflation of their real estate. So the theory always was that once they got their real estate uh, absorbed. When, when, once they got all the real estate that they had overpriced and the, and, the, and, the, and the prices crashed, and then people started buying back into the market slowly but surely at the depressed prices, there was always a belief that that would cause Ireland to restabilize because Ireland is not a crazy country. In other words, they're not they're not they're not doing anything to intentionally hurt themselves. They just way overfinanced their real estate. They got caught in a giant real estate bubble. It collapsed because of the bubble globally, and they were left with so much real estate at inflated prices, their small economy could not absorb it. Well, they've been diligently working for the last four years to fix that, or five years, actually, and um, they're exiting, meaning they no longer require loans from the European community to meet their budgets. So that's the first country that's been sick that required emergency euro infusions that's emerged without having to have the European Union pull it out. In other words, they, they don't require that safety net right now. The other countries still in grave crisis are, in the order of greatest crisis, Greece. Probably second greatest crisis, I'd have to say, would be Portugal. Oh, I think Portugal's going to be okay. And probably Greece is going to be okay in the long run. Um, and, of course, you know, you got the question of what's going to happen with Italy, but that's that's wound up in culture, politics, um, the, the, the whether or not um, they, they actually do get free of um, the former prime minister there, uh, Berlusconi. Uh, Berlusconi, and, and 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 you know, and, and, and you know, he's going to wear this ankle bracelet. And he's going to be confined to one of his palaces. But just the fact that he's been convicted and, and now thrown out of the Senate, uh, his party's in shambles. He's trying to force it back under control. It looks like he can't quite get it done. So I think Italy's going to finally get its political act cleaned up over the next two or three years. I think there's some, and I want to go into this in a future show, there's still what I call really fundamental flaws in the European euro monetary system. And we should talk about those again because we talked about them before the euro got in crisis. What we described is what put the euro in crisis, and those fundamental flaws have not been addressed. So they have, they've pumped a lot of money to get past what they thought was the problem, but they haven't fixed the fundamental that got them the problem in the first place, and that would be worth a longer conversation in a future program. Yeah, yeah. And the one country you didn't mention there is Spain. What's your outlook for Spain? Well, my outlook for Spain, I should have mentioned Spain. Spain, first of all, I think is, um, is going to end up like Ireland. It's going to work its own way out. For a whole bunch of reasons, I think that's true. First of all, uh, after Germany, Spain has the most renewable energy of any country in Europe. And um, I think Spain, um, again, got caught in the real estate bubble. Their real estate was particularly inflated because Spain is so po- popular with Europeans. So everybody wanted to have their place on the Costa del Sol. Um, real estate pro- uh, values went to unsustainable heights. Spanish banks financed it, shouldn't have. Bubble collapses globally, collapses in Spain, and Spain, the Spanish banks are sitting there with, you know, gazillions of dollars of debt that they can't possibly service, and, you know, everybody underwater. And then they went from that to an unemployment rate of as high as 50% of Spanish youth, 25% nationwide. Having said that, what Spain is doing, which is what Ireland did, is working their way out one peseta at a time. In other words, they're, their real estate values have crashed. They're now back to sustainable levels. Their energy system is more affordable because so little, so much dependence on foreign oil has been reduced, so that gives them a competitive advantage. They have an extremely vibrant and strong, cohesive, small appliance manufacturing sector, particularly headed up by the Basque community in Mondragon. Uh, they have um, a lot of inherently stabilizing economic policies in place right now, and I think they recognize the fundamentals that had to get addressed. 
the one real black cloud over the Spanish horizon, which people should be looking at, is what will happen to Catalonia. Um, Barcelona is a city that um, uh, contributes way more to the federal budget than it gets back. Catalonia is the, is the province that, that, that Barcelona is the, is, the head, is the lead city in. And uh, the Catalonians, Catalans have decided they want to break from Spain. Um, they're not going to be allowed to do that, obviously. Uh, there's going to be continuous contention between Barcelona and all of Catalonia and Spain. And that internal division has a possibility of causing future adverse sociological and economic ripples that we all have to monitor before we can feel safely that Spain will get out of the, out of the woods. See, Ireland had going for it is it was a unitary culture all pulling in the same direction, just trying to get, bad, a bad, just trying to get by a bad slip in the road. Spain's trying to do the same thing, but with a badly fractured culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to get to uh, uh, the super typhoon we just saw that wrecked the Philippines. Uh, what, what's your idea here, and a way that we can avoid these insane delays in aid reaching areas affected by natural disasters? Yeah, I think first of all, Typhoon Haiyan which hit the Philippines. And remember, we saw that on our television sets two days before it hit the Philippines. We knew it was a mother storm building, just like we saw Sandy getting ready to hit the Northeast. And despite that, we didn't do anything. We waited till 11, 12 million people got wiped out, and the pictures started coming back before we started even moving the aircraft carriers over there. Um... I'm told that the first 12 helicopters that were able to start delivering water and food in a country that had lost its roads and its ability to pass because everything was debris-strewn, the first 12 kill helicopters came off that aircraft carrier, the U.S. aircraft carrier, that docked just uh, a couple days ago. So they went for five days, the whole country went for five days without food and water and electricity, and in some areas they went for six to seven days. Now, and when you have an infection from a piece of, you know, from uh, uh, any kind of injury you sustained, let alone something that was a serious injury, uh, you got to treat that infection. Well, there's no electricity, there's no power, there was no drugs, there was no hospitals, or one hospital that was like basically had nothing, but they could suture people. They could, they had some thread and needles. That was about it. So, uh, you, you got to ask yourself, why haven't we learned? Uh, Bill Clinton, former President Clinton, wrote a report right after the tsunami that hit Thailand a few years ago, basically pointing out all the ways that the international community needs to get its act together in order for us to be more effective in a humanitarian way when the next disaster struck. Now, what's interesting is that basically that report was released, put on the shelf, and not one of its recommendations, to the best of my knowledge, was ever implemented. So we, we studied it. We said, here's what we ought to do in the future, and then we ignored it. And, and then we see a, thing, a storm like Superstorm Sandy. It's coming to the Philippines two days before it gets there, and nobody, it's not anybody's job to get ready so that as soon as the storm passes, you can get on the ground and start delivering food, water, sanitation, medicine, etc., shelter. Now, that kind of craziness doesn't make sense to me in a world where we know that that typhoon Haiyan, which had the highest recorded winds over 190 knots, over 200 miles an hour, ever recorded by storm. That was undoubtedly Maybe. the biggest storm ever recorded in human history, bigger than Superstorm Sandy. And, and, it, and that was the 24th typhoon to hit Philippines in that area. So we, we know it's coming, and we know the bigger ones are going to get bigger because the heat of the water is what provides the energy for the storm, and all the oceans are heating for the climate change. So it's not like we're wondering if there's going to be another typhoon high on, to the contrary, we're wondering how high, how big is big anymore. If, right. if, if we've never had a storm at 200 miles per hour clock before, does that mean we're going to see one at 250 miles an hour? I think it does. Does it mean that we're going to see storms that are so large entire countries are under them? I think it does. Heck, Haiyan basically occupied a third of the Philippines already. So we know this is coming. And if we're going to pretend to have an international humanitarian effort, and by the way, it's much cheaper if you plan it, what we have to do, Matt, is we have to develop an emergency response capability. So what we're going to do is write some articles, probably be a one or two e-books, 
on the subject of how important it is to have an emergency relief organization, and more importantly, how it will operate. And what I'm going to propose is that you, we invite five or six of key political leaders, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, people of that stature, ask them if they will be a board of directors together with a half a dozen serious international business people. You know, Howard uh, from uh, Starbucks, um, Indira from Pepsi, and a few other major uh, Paul Poland from Unilever. And what we'd have these guys do and these women is ahead of time figure out what they were going to do in the face of a disaster. And when you see a storm two days away, they convene, and they immediately go, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have to get a, a million uh, two-ounce cartons of water ready to be delivered within 12 hours after the storm passes. Okay, Howard Schultz, you're great at Starbucks. You guys know how to make packaged water, and so does Unilever, by the way. Let's get it in there. Unilever, you make soap. You make, you make um, agents for, uh, for cleansing, cleaning wounds. How are we going to get the right size in there? And, and, you, and you get the business community lashed up with this political leadership at a high enough level where nobody's going to be taking advantage for themselves. They meet, make their plans, and there's a permanent staff that would then execute on that. And what you'll see is a radical shift so that when you have 11, 12, 14 million people, and it's going to go up, as you know, if you listen to the show, we've been telling you that where 900,000 people were affected in Katrina, 300,000 of which are never going to come back to New Orleans, we told you. As the storms get bigger, it'll be millions and millions and tens of millions of people. And that's what's happening. So we need to be prepared for that, unless we're going to say, just throw up our hands and say, well, you know what? It's impossible to do humanitarian assistance. Well, it's not impossible. It's just hard. And it's doable. And that's what the Clinton report was talking about. So I think it's time to call for an emergency response. And let's quit waiting for Batman and Thor and Superman to show up. And let's get our act together and do it right. I mean, the superheroes we're waiting for are just us. Properly yeah. prepared and properly organized. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Ronaldo, with, with that, I want to make a really special and huge announcement. Actually, for our listening audience, uh, we're going to transition this show. We have so much information, and there's so much happening right now that we really feel like we need to be a weekly show. Um, we're going to move to a weekly schedule where we're going to do a commentary and interviews in one podcast, and then we're going to split off and do the lightning round with personal financial advice in a second podcast that will be paid for to uh, support the work we're doing here and to really uh, demonstrate the value of this. And, uh, you know, we're, we're counting on our audience to listen weekly and to use the information we give them to help support them and protect their portfolios. Um, Ronald, is there anything you want to talk about about that shift? Yeah. First of all, I'm excited that we're going to be turning this into a 20, two 20-minute shows. I'm excited that the kind of commentary I like to do, uh, I'm going to get to keep doing. And I think 20 minutes is easier for people to listen to, because look at the volume of stuff I'm covering today. I think it's yeah. easier to listen to 20 minutes than it is to listen to an hour. Right, so I'm glad I'm going to do that. We're going to do it for free. And I want everybody to tell their friends it's a free service. And Lord knows, maybe we can get our act together as a culture and start to change the world. That's what I'd like to think. And by the way, my challenge to everybody listening is this. Don't think because you can't do everything that you can't do anything. If you are concerned about the same issues we are at the Academy, it's your job to do something, no matter how small. And I said earlier in this broadcast, I believe, find that one thing you can do. Well, one of the things you could do is every day recommend this program to somebody you know. Let's build our audience so we have a bigger audience to talk to who can then talk to us about what they think and care about and how we can address it. So right. glad we're going to be doing that show, the 20-minute show. Number two, I'm really excited that we're going to break off the financial component depend on that for me to help them figure out how to protect their 401k or their IRA or just their savings account in a time when it's increasingly hard, as you know, for the middle class to hang on to its money. So I want, I'm just really excited about putting a 20-minute show together just to have people learn how they can make more money for themselves. I'm really excited about that. So breaking those two shows apart, doing them every week instead of once a month so it's really timely. Look at that story I did in China. It took me a month after, that was, after I discovered that story to get it on the air. Uh, now I'll be able to get it on the air in five days or less. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm really hoping people respond to both shows, the free one, which will be what we're doing now, and the paid one, which will be our lightning round, but done in a way that will literally be addressing things you can do immediately to increase your wealth and in, 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 in protect the savings that you already have. Hopefully you got some. 
That's right. So watch your inbox. We'll be sending an announcement about that as we uh, structure it, and we're going to make the content very easy to share so you can bring all your friends to the to the free podcast. Um, Ronaldo, with Oh, by the way, that, and you should tell yeah. them, Matt, you should also tell them we're not going to use their email addresses to sell them. I mean, we're going to respect your privacy. Of course. But we're going to start collecting your email addresses because, folks, we don't know who you are yet. We know how many of you there are, but we don't know who you are. And we want to start talking to people in our community, which is people who listen to the show, and we need to create a dialogue here. The Academy That's is right. about dialogue. So it's got and to be more note, than me just talking to you. On that note, if you have comments, questions, or uh, anything you'd like to stay in touch with us about, please email us directly at info, I-N-F-O, at worldbusiness.org. Again, that's info at worldbusiness.org, and we'll get back to you. Uh, Ronaldo, I want to move now to the lightning round. Uh, there's a few asset classes you wanted to talk about, uh, specifically uh, coal and oil and gas stocks. What's going on in that market? Okay, good news. Um, so last month, I told people that I thought Bill McKibben was doing the right thing morally but with his uh, campaign to disinvest uh, fossil fuels. And Bill McKibben of 350.org, if you don't know him, folks, you should go to his website, check him out. He's a real guy. It's, it's great what he's doing. McKibben's been going around. He's been supported by college students all over America, doing the same pitch that people did during the days of apartheid in South Africa, saying, look, until these South African companies clean up their act and stop supporting uh, apartheid, black slavery, we should not own their stocks in the portfolios of educational institutions or other nonprofit institutions. And um, now what McKibben's saying is these fossil fuel companies are destroying the planet, literally. They're going to lead to hundreds of millions, if not billions of people dying. It's morally wrong to own their stocks in the portfolio of educational institutions or otherwise. And he's been urging them to sell off those stocks. Now, we said a month ago, Bill McKibben's right for all the reasons he's giving, but there's another reason Bill McKibben's right, and it has to do with just good old-fashioned greed. And what I said in the program a month ago was, I think uh, fossil fuel stocks have peaked, meaning for, for pressures I'd be glad to explain, and I hope we have a show at some point where somebody asks me to explain why fossil fuel stocks have peaked. I believe it makes economic sense, and I said so last month, to sell your fossil fuel stocks just because they weren't a good bet anymore. Now, it turns out we were right. Fossil fuel stocks started dropping within five days. Why? Because the fundamentals behind fossil fuels are not good. Example, look at the price you're paying for gasoline in whatever city in America you live. And if you don't live in America, look at it where you're, where you, whatever country you live in. But I can speak to America for sure. And the price of gasoline is down about 11%. Yeah. And dropping. It's going to continue to drop. Why? Because... As we said in our book, Freedom from Mideast Oil, eight years ago, if the U.S. government would change the CAFE fuel standards, it would radically reduce the amount of oil we need to power the American car automobile fleet. And sure enough, that's what the president did two years ago, and it's now kicking in. So the higher average fuel economy – actually, it's happening even faster than many predicted. We're delighted to see the speed which is happening. So the higher fuel economy that we're getting and, and is, is dropping our demand – for domestic oil, for oil period, in the form of gasoline, which means, given that there's a, an increasing glut in the United States of oil, the prices will come down. Now, some of the environmentalists are unhappy about that. They say, well, gee, the more expensive oil is, the easier it will be switched to renewables. I don't agree. It's still too expensive for a whole bunch of reasons, including climate change. So if they were forced to pay for the damage they're doing to the climate, their so-called externalities, for the garbage they're putting in the air, if they were forced to pay for that, you know, fossil fuels would be astronomically expensive. Even fracked natural gas, as I said earlier, releases tons of natural gas, uh, methane, every time you frack, not to mention what it does to the water supplies. So to me, it's clear that just as and we predicted two years ago that it was time to sell all coal stocks for economic reasons. That turned out to be right. right. And now we're predicting that fossil fuel stocks as a whole over the next 20 years, will drop. Does that mean tomorrow they'll be lower than they are today? No. Will they continue to waver up and down? Yes. Look for them to adopt extremely liberal dividend policies. They've got tons of money to give away. And those liberal dividend policies will undoubtedly help to keep their stocks propped up. But if you look at the capital asset of their balance sheet, what you will see is that fossil fuel companies have peaked, meaning the amount of proven reserves 
times the dollars per barrel for every barrel of oil you can get from those reserves is not going to continue to rise, and therefore their balance sheets are going to begin over a period of number of years inexorably to fall lower. At some point, they'll be forced to actually write off all the barrels of oil they can't recover. That's in the future, although as Rolling Stone pointed out a year ago, clearly their balance sheets are more full of more water than they are oil. That's a joke, but it's true. Well, Ronaldo, you mentioned coal, actually, and one of the largest utility con- companies in the country, the Tennessee Valley Authority, is cutting its coal usage by 20%, uh, getting rid of coal or dropping their generation of power from coal from 38% down to 20% and replacing that with solar and hydropower. Uh, is that another example of the, the, the coal industry's death nail? Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, as you know, and I won't name the individual, somebody who I know quite well owns a coal mine, and I told them, two years ago, get out of the coal, you're going to lose money. They said, well, yeah, America's going to slow down coal, but we'll still be able to sell it everywhere else in the world. And the answer is, they won't. Here's why. In the U.S., and you just mentioned the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is one of the largest utilities in America, they just eliminated 20% of their coal-fired capacity. I believe they'll eliminate another 20% within 12 months. Eventually, Within five years, 100% of all the coal they were burning is going to go away. And that was, at one point, 38% of all the electricity Tennessee Valley Authority made. So almost 40% of all the electricity TVA was generating came from coal. It's going to zero within five years. Huge dent. Now, the belief that you could therefore sell it to the Chinese because they were building one new coal-fired plant a week also is flawed because the Chinese have now discovered, and by the way, in the 10-year plan that I spoke about earlier in this program, one of the things they talked about is the necessity, not the desirability, the necessity to to create environmental safeguards because they literally have whole cities, as you know, which they can't even, where people can't go outside. where the the air is so filthy, it's like the old days of London fog back in the turn of the Industrial Revolution, turn of the century. So China has gotten the message that it's too expensive to burn coal, and they're rapidly looking at ways to get out of it. And they will move quickly to get out of coal, frankly, than the U.S. will. Now, we have a lot of other fossil fuels where it's not that obvious anymore. But it wasn't obvious in coal two years ago when we made that call. So what I'm saying to people is... Yes, there could be spikes, but if you look at a 5, 10, 15, or 20-year trend line, totally apart from the ethics, which I believe, and you know, uh, Matt, I've never owned a coal stock or an oil stock, apart from the ethics of it, which I think it's wrong to profit by a company that is destroying the planet, just like I've never owned a tobacco stock because I think it's wrong to buy to profit from a company that's killing people. Well, if you're killing a whole planet, a fortiori, you don't own that stock on a moral grounds. But if you didn't care, if morally it wasn't an issue, and for three years we've been telling people whether the price of oil was going to go up or down on the show, just because some people don't agree with my philosophy, for purely economic reasons now, it's not a good place to put your money if you're thinking of having that money 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, because the price of those stocks will drop over time, unless they so get smart, people- and they haven't yet. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, we're, we're telling people to get out of uh, fossil fuel stocks. Is there somewhere you'd like them to put their money or recommend that they would look to put their money? Um, well, I mean, you know, we talked about dividend stocks, and I think we're out of time, so I can't do it today. But, for example, I like what are called small-cap dividend stocks. So a small-cap company is under $5 billion, under certain. Well, some people say under $5 billion. Well, yeah, use that as a, it's a good rule of thumb. Under $5 billion market capitalization is a small-cap stock. That stock is going to outperform large cap, meaning you know, $20, 30 $50 billion companies. It's going to outperform typically on every level, particularly in dividend yield if you play it right. So I like getting a 3 to 5% dividend yield uh, from a small cap stock as, to me, a way to ensure uh, future economic well-being uh, and to get a current yield as well. So I'm in dividend stocks right now. Uh, you know I've talked to people about if you don't own a home and you're intending to buy one, a year ago was the best time to do it. It's still a very good time in many parts of the country, but clearly the market's rising. I believe multi-dwelling uh, units are still a good buy in the right market. Uh, do I think you should be buying them in, in Las Vegas? Not necessarily. But do I think you should be buying them in Los Angeles? Yeah, I do. Santa Barbara? Yeah, I do. Uh, so market by market. And then remember, everything you do has to be done in the context of what's the 
climate change impact on that region. So no one in their right mind should rebuild in um, Taklaban because it's in, her, it's in Typhoon Alley, and it's going to get hit 20-some times again next year, and one or more of them are going to be huge ones. So you're never going to get ahead of the game. What I told someone who I love dearly, who's a good friend, whose relatives live in Cebu, uh, I said, any grants you can get from the government to rebuild, take the money, go as far north as you can in the Philippines, and build as high up the mountain as, as is reasonable. But get out of the out of the typhoon uh, alley. And um, that is the future for Taklaban. So 12 million people are going to have to be relocated. If they don't, they'll get hit again and again and again, and the die-off will escalate. And the cost of, of, of humanitarian relief will dramatically escalate as well. So it's time to wrap, wrap up the show and all that, but I wanted to see if you had any closing, closing thoughts for the audience. Yeah, I, I, one closing thought. You know, the Volcker Rules hasn't been enforced. The Volcker Rule says that banks can't be gambling with depositors' money. They want to gamble, they've got to gamble with their own money. The banks in Wall Street have been successful in keeping the Volcker Rule from being implemented, even though it was, it was the one thing of, of all the things that we suggested during the recession that could have prevented the Great Recession from happening. That, together with the, with the fact that the um, derivatives are now being written in totally unregulated ways, in quantities as big as they were before the recession, means that the financial or monetary system of the planet is in grave jeopardy. And unless the U.S. population wakes up, the last recession, as rotten as it was, worst recession since the Great Depression, as bad as that looked, the next one's going to be worse. A lot of people are saying it's going to happen by 2016. I'm not so sure. But what I think is important is if we don't, politically start to bring these giant, too-big-to-fail banks under control, and apparently we've been unwilling to do so so far, I believe that the inevitable will occur. Will it be 216, 217, 215? I can't say. But clearly it will occur again. And it will be worse. It will be a full-blown depression. Think about it, folks. It's time to get active. Well, with that, on that note, uh, continue to watch your inboxes for our big change that we're making to a weekly podcast. And on behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for joining us. Please come to our website at worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows and tune in next month. Uh, we'll be going to weekly in, starting in January. Uh, so next month we'll have a show. In January we will start our weekly schedule. Ronaldo, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Matt. Thanks to all our listeners. Have a great uh, week and a great month, and we'll talk to you soon.